Welcome back to the Disruptors Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Johnson. The pandemic impacted many startups over the last few years, and while some failed and others survived, a few actually thrived coming out of it. One of those companies was Crafty, which helps organizations manage their food and beverage programs. Crafty managed to not only survive a world-shaking event for their business, but actually stumbled upon a business model that allowed them to emerge with more momentum than ever, having recently closed their Series A. In this episode, Nate Rosenstock and Ishan Daya, two of the co-founders, discuss how they built Crafty pre-pandemic, how they navigated the company through troubled waters, and emerged from the other side stronger than ever, as well as how they think about management and decision-making. Full disclosure, Manifold Ventures has invested in Crafty, so I've been able to have a front row seat to see how these guys think and work, and I've been incredibly impressed, especially as they navigated the pandemic. I think you'll find this really interesting. Hope you get a lot of value out of it. And with that, let's go to Nate and Ishan. All right, guys, thank you so much for doing this. I'm really excited uh, to have you all on, and it's been obviously fun to follow the Crafty journey through the years and the ups and downs and now big ups. I'd love to get into some of that stuff. But why don't we just start with kind of just for folks that aren't familiar, what is Crafty and maybe how did y'all come up with the idea? Where did it start from? Sure. So Crafty is a centralized platform for workplaces to manage food and beverage programs across their employee bases, no matter where they work. And the genesis is Ishan and I both out of college went to work at McKinsey and Company. So if you can imagine... Two 22-year-old kids wearing a suit and tie five days a week, traveling to luxurious destinations like Columbus, Ohio, yeah. Bentonville, Arizona, or Arkansas. <laughs> and when we started working, there were a couple things that we noticed. First is, goodness, we spend a lot of our lives working now. After the mm-hmm. flexibility of college, I think for a lot of young people who join the workforce, they realize, okay, I'm going to be spending a lot of my life working now. This is a a huge part of, of who I am and how I spend my time. Mm-hmm. And the second thing that we noticed was if you compare the number of companies who are offering ways to improve the employee experience actively now as compared to even recent history, but certainly distant history, it's incredible mm-hmm. what companies are doing to improve the employee experience. And we saw one thing in particular, which was food and beverage. And that's one in which if you were to look back in 1950, compare it today, look back at 1990, even the early Silicon Valley days and compare that today, food has become this universal tool that employers use as a way to show their care and appreciation for employees. And so under those two observations, Ishan and I and, and two friends, Jimmy Paul and Chris Ritter got together to launch Crafty with the mission of helping companies craft a better workplace through food and beverage. And Mm -hmm. the the business models evolved over time, but the mission has stayed consistent. When we launched the business, we started with one category, which was craft beer. And Mm -hmm. over time, expanded category to category to category. We also launched in one geography, Chicago, and then over time have expanded geography, geography to geography. And so our goal and, and our vision for the business is to fuel the world's workforce and really help companies manage the future of work and thinking about what value food and beverage can bring as a, a net positive to, to their employees' experience. Very cool. Just to, to visualize it for folks, you know, I'm an office manager. I go to Office Max or whatever and I order snacks or however I currently do it, like 
paint a picture for people of like what the before state is and then what the after state is like once they start working with crafty like what how how does it get elevated for their employees and their team and for themselves in terms of like managing all of it yeah so it depends on the size of the client i'll say and the complexity of the program but Really what we try and push is the idea of pre-crafty, you probably have an office manager that is placing orders across 10 different platforms to be able to get the products on site. And then they're also the ones that are stocking that product, trying to understand what their budget is, managing PDFs, managing written invoices, really trying to cobble together what is an expansive employee experience for the in-office side. Then there is everything that this pandemic has brought about, which is how do we engage with our employees on a remote basis? How do we sh- share that same like love and care that we're trying to show within the office to folks that are not working in an office space? Mm-hmm. So that might mean that they are shipping things from a Target or you know cobbling together a care package in their office to be able to ship over to employees and essentially creating a bunch of point solutions that tend to be tough to scale. What we do at Crafty is we try and consolidate all of these different vendors and all of these different programs into one consolidated experience on the Crafty platform. Whether you have employees in Seattle and St. Louis and uh, Cleveland, Ohio and Bentonville, Arkansas, as well as an office in seven different markets in the US, what we say is we're going to give your employees a consolidated, a consistent experience, an equitable experience across all of these markets, across all of these offices, where you can engage with them with food and beverage. And all of that can be managed and executed on the Crafty platform, whether in office or whether remote. Our platform is really the place to have a nimble experience as people are shifting what hybrid even means for their office space to be able to actually offer that consistent experience. Yeah. yeah. I'd love to hear a little bit about like the early days when, when, you know, you started, like you said, in one geography, you're a couple of McKinsey grads. I always love the origin stories and like the grittiness of the early, like you're effectively like trying to figure a lot of this stuff out on the yeah. fly and you're going from wearing a suit and, and maybe not staying in like W hotels, but like you went from a certain type of life to like, now you're like delivering not just beer, but like sometimes like machinery and hardware and like dealing with things breaking and all of that kind of stuff. I'd love to hear like, how did you, how did you, did you already have expertise around some of that stuff? Or were you figuring all of this out as you went? Like, I'd love to hear about the early first clients and what you learned. And I think one of our, one of our investors, one of our other investors recently described, he said, the entrepreneurial journey is not a straight line. And I thought that was really astute. And for us, sometimes in recounting our experience, it sounds so methodical. And you think about even Jeff Bezos, arguably one of the best entrepreneurs of recent history. It's like he's got this day one letter and the vision has stayed the same forever. And he knew what he was going to build. I don't think that's the case for many entrepreneurs. It wasn't for us. You learn a lot in the, the journey. And so the early stages of the business for us was... We identified a problem. We identified a market, a customer with a problem, and we figured out a way in which we thought we could solve it with a scalable solution. So it was craft beer for company happy hours, which there weren't very many competitors in the space, and there definitely wasn't a platform solution. But what that looks like on a day-to-day basis is some days the, the truck doesn't show up or the delivery doesn't make make its way to the office. And 
one of our first clients was McKinsey, the office that we had left to start this business. They're incredibly supportive. They're willing to be one of our first customers. But I know, Ishan, you had this experience as well. I remember being in the office fixing equipment issue, like tapping kegs or there's an issue with the pour on a kegerator. And my former colleagues are looking yeah. at me like, dude, what are you doing? And it was definitely one of those moments where you do think to yourself, like, how do we get to the next level? How do we make the business more professionalized? How do we scale these operations so that we don't have to do this anymore? But that is what the beginning looks like, especially for us. You know, we bootstrapped the first year of the business. There was a lot of hands on get behind the wheel of the truck to make this delivery happen because our original business model was vertically integrated. It was the idea that we were going to control the end-to-end experience for our clients while simultaneously developing the technology that will Mm -hmm. elevate their experience. So supply chain and tech, the business now still has both components, but the platform side of the business, our partner operations is the side that has grown tremendously, especially over recent history. We've expanded from two geographies to 30 and seen nearly 900% growth in the year 2021. That's been primarily where the software platform has allowed us to operate in a much more expansive and beautiful way than um, we had been able to just in the markets where we own fulfillment and Mm-hmm. It was not by design. When we launched the company, we were not going to say, hey, we're going to be this platform at the end of the day, but you yeah. see opportunities and learn as you go. When you were when you were getting started, how, you know, again, when you're bootstrapping, you're selling, it's, it's a little bit unique in the sense of like a lot of startups, things are ugly. You have to ship. It doesn't, it's not something that you're necessarily proud of, but you have to get forward momentum, but they're selling to like SMBs the degree of polish necessary maybe is a little bit less, but you all are going into McKinsey, the McKinsey's of the world, right? And in the early days, I would imagine that some of you were, some of them were giving you like side eye glances, like who the hell are these guys? How did you, how did you handle things from a sales perspective early on when you don't have the track record, when you don't necessarily have the polish that you now have from a brand perspective and otherwise, but you're selling to kind of companies that are used to being sold by people that are more established or whatever it is. Like, how did you, how did you, what did you learn about sales kind of in the early days there? Yeah. And I think that this, this relates a lot to, to how we scaled the business, which was, we weren't a product oriented company, right? We weren't a company that said craft beer is the everything for us. We want to live and die by craft beer. We were a client obsessed organization. We were a client obsessed product. Right. We said, hey, we know that there is this individual or is that there's this team that is responsible for the care of the employee that's in the office. And they oftentimes don't get the love that they probably deserve. And they generally need to deal with a lot of pain and a lot of headache to be able to actually materialize the experience that all of us love every day. Right. Getting mm-hmm. coffee, being able to get snacks, being able to just feel appreciated when you're in an office space. So yeah. early on, we said, hey, craft beer is going to be kind of a way that we help mold this experience. But really what we're focused on is this individual. And we're going to obsess over this individual and we're going to give them more attention. And we're going to talk to them more than any other vendor they've ever worked with. Because we want to learn about what their needs are. Mm-hmm. Because we know that it's not just craft beer. 
but it's about how do we make that individual feel like an enterprise client, right? Yeah, we were just starting in beer. We were just doing happy hours. But from the beginning, we were obsessed with that client to understand, cool, it sounds like happy hours is really difficult for you. But also, it sounds like coffee is really tough. It sounds like being able to think about merchandising and inventory management and POs and finance management and budget management and doing all of the snacks and beverages and catering is also really difficult. So the way we were able to land these clients and the way we were able to expand these clients was actually marrying a lot of what we learned at McKinsey, which was bringing that level of client obsession and that level of client focus and polish to an industry and a sales cycle that hadn't really ever seen that before. Hmm. So we went in in a consultative approach to really understand what are the things that you need and we are building the technology and the service to Hmm. be able to actually fulfill those needs in a more automated way where this feels like you are taking all of this weight off of your shoulders versus this industry that we stepped into Sometimes we think about how we like accidentally stepped into this industry, yeah. but this industry that we stepped in was really an industry that's old and pretty archaic, right? We think about Aramark, Sodexo, Compass Group, and they haven't had technology at the, at the heart of what they're doing and oftentimes haven't really thought about the client experience and the client journey as being one that is at the center of their organization. Yeah. Yeah. I'd love to learn a little bit about what you've, I guess, learned from a platform building perspective. We've frequently told people that have asked that we think of you guys as a, as a technology business, or at least a technology-enabled business, right? At a minimum. Again, a lot of startups, it's like B2B SaaS, and there's not a big service component to it. How did you stand up both kind of simultaneously? What was the relationship between making decisions from more of a supply chain logistics perspective and then tying that into the tech and making sure that that is accomplishing those goals and that the systems don't break. And how did you think about iteration time even, like lean startup-y type of cadences? I'd love just to learn about building a technology-enabled services business rather than just a technology business, if that makes sense. Yeah, a lot of the credit goes to Jimmy, who's our CTO, who's brilliant. But the product was not client-facing for a long period of time. And it was originally developing technology that our team could use to automate tasks and deliver a better experience for our client. One of the problems we discovered really early on as we started to really manage the full end-to-end food and beverage program for clients early on was there was no inventory management tools being used on site in the client space. Hmm. The way it worked before Crafty with other vendors was they would go in and they would look and they would sort of build an order in Excel or on a a piece of paper and say, here's what we should bring next time. They would go and they would look, which opens up a a tremendous amount of human error, allows you to miss things. And it doesn't allow you to scale that type of operation either. The first, one of the first pieces of software tools that we developed was our inventory management platform for offices which effectively virtualizes the inventory that we store on hand in our client storage rooms, uses par levels and supply chain logic to automate reorders and to get smarter over time. Now that we don't live in a world where we know people are coming into the office five days a week consistently, that Mm -hmm. tool has become so important 
for the way in which companies manage their on-site inventory in their offices, especially given the volatility and spikes that we see with consumption. So the product always focused on problems. It was always, okay, what are the sort of operational problems that we need to build? In the early stages of it, we're always functionally excellent and aesthetically good enough because, you know, we were sort of developer designed early on. We weren't showing our technology to the clients as we shifted our technology to being client facing, building and launching our dashboard, giving visibility and action to clients to take on our, our online interface. Then we started to have to become a little more design and aesthetically oriented, but we really focused the business on solving problems because there was no value to us in showing a slick dashboard if the dashboard was going to say your inventory's off. Yeah. And be like, great, but like there's a physical inventory problem happening. I don't care if you've got a dashboard. So yeah. we needed to perfect the operation first before we were going to invest time in really building some of the, the client facing components. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I want to get into the kind of the evolution. It sounds like it was almost serendipitous in a way that you had, you happened to have this platform. And then as things moved to kind of hybrid, it seems like it was ideally positioned for that. So I'd love to like come back to that when we get to the evolution. But you mentioned for in the beginning, you were kind of had this vertical integration idea and there were pros and cons to that. You had to kind of follow, if I understood it correctly, almost like an Uber-like market-by-market type of model. And I know that you've kind of evolved beyond that. But I think it would be really interesting because a lot of organizations will either have that model or will have that model or need to have that model. I'd, I'd love to learn what maybe you learned about the playbook of lighting up new markets, when that was your business model, and lessons that you learned from that process that other founders might find relevant. Yeah, I will say the the market by market model is a tough model. There is so much that we learned from our first expansion because our first expansion was into the Bay Area in 2018. Yeah. Time really has flown by over the last four years. So I'll kind of get into why we did that in the first Mm -hmm. place. What was our decision logic behind it and then how we did it? Yeah. So we have always been of the mindset marrying two two different thoughts. One is small is all. Um, Adrian Marie Brown is this brilliant person who has this phrase, which is small is all. Um, small is good, small is all. Which is the idea that like the small is the reflection of the large, right? And how do we go about trying to perfect this thing on a small basis and then scale it from there rather than just trying to scale something immediately? And that's yeah. kind of been a consistent theme of how we've approached building this business. But that's married to the idea of we don't want to just open up a market and we don't want to just open up a business without demand, right? Because then on a business perspective, you're you're just like starting to operate at a loss from the very from the very beginning. You don't actually have confirmation that you're going to be able to get revenue on that market. So the reason that we started the Bay Area market was because we had clients that had a Chicago office space and said, hey, we love what you're doing here in Chicago. There's really no one that's doing exactly what you guys do in the Bay Area. Can you come out to the Bay Area? And can you give us a similar experience to what you have in Chicago? So what we did was we essentially pre-signed contracts to be able to launch in the Bay Area. So that way we knew that we were launching with revenue on the table. So it just allowed our economics to actually work in the right way, which was one of the pushes for us 
and is also the model that we use for launching new programs. We don't launch new programs unless we know that there's actual client demand and revenue that's going to be behind it. So we, we get ready to launch the Bay Area. And some of the, the big learnings that we had and learning to build a physical operation in a space was hire great people that know the market. Hire great people that are local to that market, that know that market, because there is so much value to understanding the nuance of a supply chain in a given market, understanding the nuance of how people even drive around and move around a city, a lot of nuance in how to recruit people in that market. And also you want to be able to start building foundational leadership in these locations. So that way you as the HQ team or you as the launch team can peel away over time. When I think about like reflecting on that time there, being able to build solid foundation around leadership and then yeah. also building solid cultural foundation in those markets too, because you can, how did you do that? Yeah. How did you do that with like a team? You're standing up a team of people that are, that haven't been in the crafty HQ. It seems like you would have to be very deliberate about making sure that the culture translates or maybe there's some degree of variance and you're okay with like the San Francisco office being a little bit different or whatever it is. How did you, how did you think about the culture aspect of it? And then to the degree that you wanted to deliberately shape it, how did you do that? Yeah. So it's, it's a really good question. And I think that it took us a couple of months to learn that. So what we did was we actually ended up sending team members from Chicago, our HQ over to the Bay area to spend periods of time there, to be able to onboard people there and to be able to spend periods of time there. Now, one of the things that we also learned was you can't try and mimic the exact culture in your HQ, right? Like that is not what you should be doing. That's not what your aim should be. Your aim yeah. should be understanding how do you go about creating a values-based foundation that is aligned across both, both areas, both geographies, while layering in a celebration of the nuance. Because that allows people to really understand and really own what that experience is in that market, while still mm -hmm. having a shared understanding of what is the client experience, what is the team experience, um, and what's the product experience that we want to actually build? So aligned values, sending people over to that market and vice versa, right? Sending people yeah. over to ATU and being able to actually do cultural exchange. So that way you're building that stable foundational base of values, but also celebrating the nuance there. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. You have four co-founders. I'd love to learn a little bit about how you all work together without getting in each other's way. But I'd also like to learn, I think specifically... We talk all the time internally, like we love all of our portfolio companies, but y'all's ability to execute at a high level has been really impressive to watch. And you, you seem to have a knack for here's the target. Oh, we beat the target. <laughs> here's the new target. Oh, we beat the target, you know, and, and not without hiccups. And obviously we'll get into some of that a little bit later, but like short of literally a global pandemic, like there was nothing that could stop y'all. So I, I would just love to hear like how, how you all... Did you just come in with that execution muscle? Were there things that you all set up that allowed you to execute at such a high level? And specifically, like with the nuance of having four co-founders, how to do that without getting in each other's way and not bumping elbows and all of that? I think you definitely need the right group of people together. It's like building any team. There's a lot of luck involved. You can know somebody your whole life. And when you launch a company, you're... It's like a marriage. You know, the four of us are, are married around this business together. And there's a lot that you find out. And so I think that the best characteristic that we've demonstrated is just accommodation for the four of us. 
business is extremely important to all of us and each other as individuals are more important to, to all of us. And that allows us to have honest dialogue, to challenge each other to be better and to ultimately think about what is the way in which we can set ourselves in this business up for success. Tactically, it's about clear lines, unquestionably. And we learn that pretty quickly. I think sometimes it's really easy if you're intentional about, okay, this person comes with this skill set, therefore this is going to be their world. Ishan and I, as an example, came with very similar experience. Graduates of Northwestern worked as generalist business analysts at McKinsey for two and a half years, mm-hmm. did different things there, none of which were corporate food and beverage. And yeah. so we needed to very quickly identify who was going to own which parts of the business. We didn't mm-hmm. rush into it and say, okay, Nate, sales, marketing, finance. It was more of an organic process. But the yeah. second we could actually say, hey, this is your world. That's the second that we did it. And I think it's allowed us to operate extremely well because we have our domains that we're accountable to each other for. And that's been very helpful. Along those lines, a startup is kind of an exercise in rapid skill acquisition in a way. And in a lot of cases, the person that can take something from zero to one is not always the person that can take it from one to 10 or whatever it is. Are there things that you all have done, again, deliberately or that you've sort of codified or whatever it is, habits, rituals, anything like that, that have allowed the four of you to continue to kind of level up? I mean, it sounds like the fact that y'all challenge each other is helpful in that regard. But like in a lot of cases, not everybody levels up at the same time. And so to have all four of you continue to execute at a high level where your job needs to be different now than it was three years ago or whatever it is, is doesn't always happen. So like anything that you, you've learned about that process of continuing to be the right guy for the role at the stage that the business needs you to be at now? Yeah, that's such a good question. And I think that on a tactical basis, there are a few things and then like on a philosophical basis, how we share values, I think is also allowed that to evolve. So yeah. I think that one thing that relates to what Nate mentioned is from early on, we created this this voting structure, you could say, but this like method of operating together where we created a commitment to each other on committing to joint decisions, right? So how do we take an idea and like really beat it to the ground and just really think about what are all of the potential flaws that could come up here and how do we think about them and how do we really break that out mm-hmm. and build a true case around whatever this argument is? And once we agree on it, we may have come into it disagreeing, but once we agree on it, we're all committing to what that direction is that we're going towards, right? So I think that that commitment to committing has been something that has been really crucial to us being able to build this business with a unified vision. I think the second thing that has been really crucial to us has been, frankly, putting ego to the side, right? And I think, honestly, the consistent questioning of, I'm not necessarily the right person for this job. What are the things that I can do to make me the right person for this job? And us making sure that we're consistently being self-critical around that and thinking about how do we go about growing? Because at the same time, parallel pathway, we're growing our team. Yeah. And we need to be leading this team and growing with our team. And how do we go about enabling them? So the function of our roles really shifted a lot over the last five years, where we started as these individual contributors that were responsible for executing our area of work. 
Yeah. But as time went on, it really required all of us to pull each other out of the weeds and say, hey, like we can't do the day-to-day execution of all of these different elements. We need to be really thinking about how do we build the systems so that way we can actually properly scale this organization. So a lot of it was us pushing each other and on a tactical basis for folks that are doing this that may be listening, we have two weekly standups amongst the four of us where we're talking about operational items, but then we're also talking about functionally, what are the things that we're doing to tackle the challenges that we have as an organization? And within each of our functions, what are the projects that we're working on? And Mm -hmm. us actually reporting on that and having the other team members, having the other co-founders say, hey, have you thought about this? Hey, have you thought about this? Yeah. So essentially we have functional leads, but we also always have the support of each other to really be that critical thought partner on how am I actually building this day in and day out? That's really interesting. You're pursuing this vertically integrated model. You're expanding market by market. Maybe it's slower than you would have liked. Maybe it's more capital intensive than you would like, but you were hitting your goals pretty consistently. And then you get thrown the curveball of all curveballs and COVID hits. And if it was going to impact any company, it would, it would impact what you all were doing. So I'd love to learn about having gone through that journey. What did you learn about navigating crisis? How to think about, you stumbled upon a tweaked business model that actually allowed you to kind of merge better than ever, but how you discovered that, decisions that you made along the process. Like, What did you learn from this experience that kind of has shaped you all as leaders and, and Crafty as an organization? We like to joke that every business has at least one core assumption. Like Uber's is people travel. Ours was people go to work. And (laughs) for for a minute there, that was not true. And that was extremely challenging for the business model. At the time we were raising capital for a series A, the business had been performing extremely well. We had exceptionally high net retention revenue. We had built a really solid brand, operationally excellent. The company seemed to have a lot of really solid pieces in place, but we were in many ways caught holding the bag when the pandemic just shut down our revenue from basically something to nothing almost, you know, in in effect. And the first thing that we did as a leadership team was think about survival. Our entire company is extremely resilient. We've got thick skin. Anytime you go through an experience like what we've gone through, it's it's Lindy's law. Like if it doesn't kill you, you're stronger. You're more likely to succeed the longer you go. And that was the mindset that we maintained. It was nothing's going to stop us. Nothing yeah. will stop us. And so we had to make difficult decisions unquestionably, especially as it relates to our people and our team. We tried a lot of different things. I think we, like many folks at the time, underestimated initially how long the pandemic was going to last. We said to each other, all of the things you think back on and say, oh, oh yeah, why would I have possibly said, what's the worst this could go till June? You know, it was like June 2020. So, but at the same time, we had a lot of really good partners in our corner who were playing their role as investors and saying, hey, doomsday scenario, this isn't going anywhere. Don't underestimate this. And I think that was extremely valuable guidance to us at the time. 
Yeah. In terms of communication with the team, you have to be fully honest about everything. And that's what we did. It was mm-hmm. the realities of the business financially. Yeah. It was the realities of the market and what we're seeing. And it was a series of town halls, talking to the company, still doing whatever we can do to put our people first. The approach we took was not, already lay everybody off right away. Yeah. It was, how do we really protect the team as much as we can in this process? And I think there's a, there's a couple schools of thought on whether or not that's the right thing to do from a purely business perspective. You know, I think a yeah. lot of folks say, just do it all at once, you know, rip the bandaid. Right. Whether that's right or wrong, it's, it's not what we did. And the constant focus for us was how do we put our people first? and survive. Survival being the overarching thing. So what we were left with after that was a core group of folks and folks who were extremely committed and we're extremely grateful to them for staying with us through that really challenging time. Yeah. After you got past this element of survival, then it was like, all right, business. The crafty business model as we know it does not work for the foreseeable future. What can we do? And at the leadership level, we built a framework that prioritized a couple of different criteria that we thought were important at the time. And so there were elements like enterprise value. There were elements like scalability. There were elements like holding inventory that we, we took a lot of ideas against to get a feel for what are the ones that we're going to test. And from yeah. that, we built a, a group of effectively project owners and SWAT teams to run with each of these projects for a phase of time and see which ones actually stick. So we didn't say, hey, this is the one, we're going to go for this one. We said here, I think we're the four and we're going to run with these four. And as we were running with these four, we could see some were working better than others. Some seemed to justify our time investment we were learning. And ultimately we were able to boil down into two. Mm -hmm. And the two were the platform concept where we could leverage partners in other markets, other companies who frankly were hit just as hard as we were and were looking for ways in which to grow and survive. And so if Crafty represented an opportunity for them at that point in time, there was excitement around that. And the second was our hybrid and remote offering. So a platform we call Crafty in a Box, which allowed us to give virtual dollars to remote employees to have the in-office experience shipped home to their home office. It allowed us to run employee gifting programs virtually. If there's not going to be a holiday party, are you going to send a gift to your remote team? And that was a, a popular thing as well. And additionally, we thought and talked a lot about the future of work. And one of the overarching themes is distribution. It's a distributed workforce, which means both more offices, and of course, remote work. And so we were thinking about a solution that could also ship to Eugene, Oregon, and allow us to be in markets where we might not have an on-site operating partner, but we can still fulfill the crafty experience to your satellite office in that market. And luckily for us, we were able to find a couple of things that seemed to solve a new problem for workplace Mm -hmm. teams, which was that Workplace teams were hit as hard as workplace service companies, because if there's no workplace, 
while the company thought themselves were going through a recession, maybe we don't need as big of a workplace team, which is untrue because the workplace is where you're working. It's not just your office. But regardless of that reality, you had individuals who were given now more responsibility with less support. They needed to be able to serve their employees who are facing uncertainty in a new work environment while also thinking about a distributed office footprint. And yet they're just one person or two people or three people. And so being able to align these solutions to those problems allowed us to scale really quickly in in an awesome way. Yeah. When you were doing, I mean, it's it's funny, it seems like the the McKinsey background was helpful in terms of kind of framing the problem and bringing, you've mentioned the use of frameworks a couple of times, seems like it's been helpful when making big strategic decisions. From an execution perspective, how did you, you're running on, you're you're testing four ideas simultaneously. And I'm I'm assuming that at least part of uh, what constitutes this one's working, this one isn't, is like, is revenue, or at least people raising their hands or whatever it is. How did you operationally test multiple business models kind of at the same time without just everything kind of breaking down, especially with like a smaller team too, like a, a core team. Now you're, now you're stratifying. Like how did that work? Yeah. Revenue, you're totally on point was one method of saying is a successful. Yeah. The second is, was client satisfaction, right? Is this actually solving a client need both today and in the long? Because we didn't want to create a solution that was just going to get us to the next few months. We wanted to create a solution that was going to get us really through the long term and transform what our business model was for what the next iteration of the workplace experience was going to be. But your, your question is a really good one on how do we actually operationalize this with such a small team? So kind of going back to that, to that statement of like small is all. Right. Like that was so core to how we thought about it. And like you can pull up that lean startup book and it sometimes felt like you were just like reading from it and how we were operationalizing this, where we said, we need to find a client that is excited and down to build with us. Right. From the very beginning, we've always been really client obsessed. Yeah. And what that's allowed us for is having pretty close client relationships. So much of our success is due to clients believing in what we did trusting in our op- in our ability to execute and being willing to test. Yeah. So for each of these different components, we essentially partnered with a client to say, okay, cool, let's think about what this problem is that we're trying to solve for you. And we have the supply chain to be able to fulfill this. We have the technology or the ability to build technology to be able to fulfill this. Mm-hmm. So let's do this in a really small way and figure out is this actually solving needs that you have? Yeah. And on the back end, is this something that's scalable for us? So we essentially had client advocates on our, on our side that helped us develop what these looked like to be able to then say, okay, cool, this makes sense or no, this doesn't. Yeah. And as we were building this out, we were having very, very frequent check-ins on the project status. Because to your point, our capacity as individuals was pretty, pretty capped, right? It was pretty low, let alone the mental capacity of like just surviving through a pandemic, Yeah, right? There was the element of how do we actually build and execute on a whole new product? So it was through these frequent check-ins that we were saying, okay, cool. Is this on track? Is this on track? And then being willing to say, no, this is not on track and no, this does not have a future and failing fast on it effectively. Yeah. Yeah. So 
saying, okay, cool. How do we immediately reallocate this time and resources to the things that are doing well? Yeah. Right. And it's the entire basis of how do you just really lean into your strengths as much as possible and identifying the things that are weaker and just saying, okay, we're not going to focus on that. We're going to focus on the things that are giving us signs of life here. So it was the idea of being willing to say no to things, starting things in a really small way, documenting, documenting, documenting process. So that way we can then use that to scale up. Interesting. And it worked, it sounds like. And I've seen you kind of emerged with a more capital efficient model, a higher margin model, a more scalable model. You know, nobody wanted the pandemic to happen, certainly. But I mean, Crafty certainly seems like it emerged stronger for it. You actually just closed an A round. What's the plan? What do the next couple of years look like for Crafty? Where do you all go from here? Hiring, first and foremost, we're, we're really building up our team. Our, our current team is about 140 folks. We hope to get to over 200 by the end of the year. We're investing in technology, both product and engineering in major ways. One of the benefits of a new business model is opportunity. One of the realities of a new business model is you have catching up to do, especially when you yeah. grow at the rate at which we grew. And so we're we're investing in developing out the technology to support our, our partners and our partner operations and also the, the team that's behind that side of the business as well. We've been doing a lot of hiring there and really across all functions, sales and marketing, of course, are, are big functions as well in which our current teams are extremely lean, have always been. We've operated from the mindset of investing in the client experience. We're not a grow at all costs type of business. We want the interactions with each client and each with each member of our team to be positive, positive yeah. interactions, each interaction. But the short answer is hiring, hiring across the business. Got it. Got it. Along those lines, you obviously have kind of a unique window into the state of work, the future of work. Coming out of it, what do you see based on the conversations that you've been having with clients and things like that? Like, what do you think the next couple of years look like in terms of how companies are thinking about the return to work, the hybridization of work, that type of thing. Models you've seen that work really well. I mean, you probably have a unique window into ones that are a complete mess and ones that are seem to be working pretty well, you know? Yeah. And it's funny how time goes on. Those that felt like a complete mess actually start making a lot more sense over time because our, our view of reality is just changing day by day by day and understanding how do we go about shifting to what is the current reality that we live in. But I think one of the one of the consistent themes that we're finding is we're in a world now and we're in an evolution of what the workplace is where employers need to meet employees where they're at, right? And where they're at might mean coming to a workplace every day. Where they're at might mean needing to be remote every day. But this idea of a distributed workforce continuing to be the central theme of how we operate, right? So organizations, and this is something that we see all the time, organizations working to first understand what is the sentiment in their office space, right? What is the sentiment of their employee base? Hmm. Because inherently, if you have an employee base that actually wants to be entirely remote and you force them to be in office, that's not going to go well. So part one is really understanding the employee as well as they can. And then understanding is the work that they're doing something that can be done on a remote basis, right? So two fundamental questions that every organization needs to be asking themselves. Um, but what we're also finding is that there is an increased validation of the element of in-person, right? There is a type of engagement that is in-person that is necessary for building culture, 
for building ideas and consistently growing and being collaborative that we're now seeing people over invest in as they're coming back from thinking about how do we go about building out this team and really rebuilding our culture as an organization. Nathan mentioned it earlier, but the idea of many offices that all might be a little bit smaller is something that we're seeing really present hmm. in, a lot of, in a lot of client spaces. And also thinking about how they have some level of nimbleness between people being in office versus being remote. I think that there was a thought process before that we're going to have a hybrid workforce, which was 20% is fully remote, 80% is fully in office. Yeah. But I think that the definition of hybrid has really evolved over time to saying hybrid actually just means sometimes we're going to be in office and sometimes we're going to be remote. And we really need to think about how do we capitalize and really take the most advantage of the time that we are in person and make sure that we're focusing the type of work while we're in person to really adapt to the benefits of the, that you get of being in person. So I think a lot more a lot more of employers being deliberate about how they engage with employees, both on a remote basis, as well as in an in-office basis. But I think one of the, the last things that I'll mention here is over the time period of COVID, and we see this with the Great Resignation, I think a lot of folks are also asking themselves right now, do I want to be working at a company that just hustles, 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 hustles? Is hustle culture what is like really attracting employees today. Yeah. Um, and I think the really clear answer is no. Right? I think people are saying, no, no, I want to work at a place that cares about me. Mm -hmm. I want to work in a place that thinks about like my authentic self where I don't have to code switch, where I can be myself when I'm going to this organization. And I know that I can be cared for because employees are starting to recognize that they are employers' most valuable asset. Yeah. yeah. And yes, that can be sh shown through pay, through salary, but it needs to really show in how these organizations actually show up and show care for their teams, which I think is one of the things that we're really excited about when we think about what's the future for Crafty, right? That's what Crafty is here to do. Mm -hmm. Crafty is here to be a tool for employers to show that they care and to be able to scale that care for their teams wherever and however they work. Yeah, that's super yeah. cool. I'll add a couple things to you just because I love the topic and I think it's a yeah. fascinating one. Yeah. It felt like in the beginning, there were so many theories about what the guiding principles were going to be. Theories like this industry is going to function this way for these reasons. Software is a good example. Oh, all software companies are going to go fully remote. Companies in the suburbs, well, they're going to stay in office because you got to drive and all these reasons. I think that the, the most common policies that we've seen companies use today are the simplest. Companies just want to help people understand how they're going to approach this right now. But over time, I think that we're going to see two things happening. One is companies who start to get more stratified in the way in which they offer different programs for different employee types. Hmm. I think there's a, a number of, of businesses where younger employees are going to be encouraged in many ways to be in the office because there's a mentorship model. We hear that a lot in the banking and financial services industries, but we've got a large younger employee base. It's important to actually learn in person. There are technology tools that can help with that, but the overarching theme is that the executive team is what's deciding. And so depending on the culture that the executive team seeks to set is, is going to be the culture that 
folks will use. And so the second thing that I think we're going to see is we're going to see a lot of companies say we're remote companies. And there's going to be a lot of companies say we're in-office companies. And there will be employees who at different stages in their career or at diff- you know, different functions or what have you will seek out companies that have a policy that matches their needs. And so when you look at the surveys, the surveys tell you that flexibility is one of the most important reasons. And so if we see that approach where some companies say we're in office, they're going to have a much more challenging time on recruitment because let's say they're in office in Atlanta. You used to have a population of people in Atlanta that you could recruit from however many million people there are in Atlanta. Well, now 50% of your talent pool are working remotely. They live in Atlanta, but they're not interested in working in office. And so you just shrank your population. And so while there will be companies and we hear about them in the news all the time and say, we're going to be an in-office company, I think it's going to be a lot harder for them on a recruitment basis, especially in the near term. Fascinating. Brave new world, man. Very cool. Well, I want to respect you guys' time. This has been super fascinating. For folks that maybe want to learn a little bit more about Crafty and then sounds like maybe want to work for Crafty, where can I send them? So website is craftydelivers.com. We have an awesome careers page there where you can see our job listings. And on social, we are crafty underscore delivers on pretty much every platform where we live. Awesome. Very cool. Well, again, it's been awesome to watch the journey and to get a front row seat to how things have gone and the the ups and downs. And we couldn't be prouder of you guys. And it, it just seems like y'all are up to the races. And if this didn't kill you, you know, what could, right? So, <laughs> you know, really, really enjoyed this conversation. Thought it was fascinating. And yeah, just really appreciate the time. Thanks, Likewise. Sean. Thank you for having us, Sean. Sean. on how to innovate and grow your own organization, visit us at www.manifold.group. And if you enjoyed this episode, we would love a review on iTunes, Spotify, or whatever platform you use. That's it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next time.